So we'll be starting chapter eight uh, of Shantideva's text today. And this chapter is Avia Wawi Kazawi. Yeah. Do you know that term, Geshila? Wawi Kazawi? Okay. It's, uh, yeah, well, I learned whack a mole from you. So now I'm teaching you Wawi Kazawi. It, what is, how do you define Wawi Kazawi? Yeah, it's a doozy. <laughs> So, you know, yeah, so this is a chapter that really shakes you uh, to the bones, yeah, if the other ones haven't, uh, because it hits right, uh, this and the next chapter hits right on the source of our problems, you know, and this one specifically on the self-centered thought, yeah, so it uh, it doesn't let us uh, wiggle away, yeah, but we will try, and we will come up with all sorts of refutations about how Shanti just doesn't know what he's talking about, and he'll shoot down every one of them, yeah, and that's what's so incredible about the way he teaches, is he anticipates, you could see he's telling you about his own mind, because he anticipates uh, how we're gonna? How we say yes, but, and he's gonna shoot down the butts. Okay, so let's begin visualizing the merit field, all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, looking at us with kindness and complete acceptance. and ourselves surrounded by all sentient beings. So let's bring our motivation in line with Shantideva's motivation. So he's uh, teaching this text to benefit us, but not just to benefit us. Okay? Because Shantideva is... uh, He's in charge of the school of bodhisattvas. 
and he wants to make sure all of his students have a very good education. So he's uh, teaching us exactly how to be bodhisattvas. And one of the chief characteristics of a bodhisattva is someone who cherishes others more than self, or at least as much as self. And so in chapter 8, this is what he is really going to be emphasizing. Because when we can break down the uh, force of the self-centered mind, it opens up so many doors to, to so many aspects of Dharma practice. So, let's remember our long-term goal of becoming Buddhas to benefit all sentient beings. And really take to heart what Shantideva is explaining to us from his own experience with compassion for all these people who lived well over a millennium after he passed away. But I think he had us and everybody else in mind when he spoke these words. Did you ever think that maybe these great beings wrote the text for us? Or do we just think, oh, they just wrote them and, uh, you know, they're sitting in some library somewhere. But I think they must have written them because they uh, really wanted to help future generations of people who they didn't even know, at least not in that form. I mean, maybe we knew Shantideva. We might have been some, uh, okay, he lived in in India. We might have been a mosquito flying around or maybe a louse in his robes. And, uh, you know, he said, in a future life, may I benefit these beings when they are in a form and they're able to understand. So here we are. But he thought of this a long time ago. Of course, he didn't know what we'd look like then. (laughs) Okay, so here we are, chapter 8. It says meditation. Yeah, so you think, oh, finally I'm going to learn how to meditation. I meditate, washing my breath. No. Well, yes. 
He's going to tell us how to meditate. But to meditate, one big step in it is uh, dispelling all the obscurations that keep us from meditating. Okay? It's like you got to clean. If you have a dirty kitchen, you got to clean the kitchen before you cook lunch. You can't cook lunch in a dirty kitchen. So he's going to help us clear away a lot of stuff. Uh-huh. And as he does that, we're going to hold on to it <laughs> and say, but, 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 this is really the source of my happiness. You can't take this away from me. And he's going to say, check up if this is really a source of happiness or not. Yeah. And then he'll uh, call us childish beings. I'm not childish. I'm a mature adult, clear thinking. But I want what I want when I want it, and I've always got to get my way, and I'm going to throw a temper tantrum if I don't. So are we childish or not? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so verse 1. Having developed joyous effort in this way, I should place my mind in concentration. For the person whose mind is distracted dwells between the fangs of, of afflictions or disturbing conceptions. Okay, so this verse is linking to the previous one. Okay, so it's good that we understand the relationships between the the different topics that he's teaching. Yeah, it's like when you do Lama meditation. Yeah, you should think about you know this topic is linked to which topics before it, which topics after it. How do these things uh, merge together? to really show me a path to go on instead of thinking that all the topics are separate, you know, compartments. Okay? So, having completed joyous effort, and we are raring to go, you know, we're not falling asleep in the middle of class. Um, you know, we're getting up in the morning, we are completely focused during our meditation, not thinking about trying to keep straight which of the ten rotas you're on to, <laughs> that you have to act according to today. I know this rota, okay, today I do this, that rota, today I do that. Yeah, so you're not thinking about that. Okay, no rotas in your mind, uh, and you're going to concentrate. Yeah. Yeah, all you need is a few minutes breathing meditation to show you how well you concentrate, huh? Yeah, or any kind of meditation. Okay. So why do we have to work on our on our concentration? For the person whose mind is distracted dwells between the fangs of the afflictions. Okay? So what are the things that chiefly distract us? Yeah, when we're trying to, to meditate, 
It's afflictions that come up. Okay. You might say, well, it's not afflictions. It's my memories. And it's my dreams. I'm thinking of the past. I'm thinking of the future. That's what, you know, disturbs my meditation. But why are we thinking of the past and future? Isn't it because we're looking for some kind of happiness and pleasure in them? Yeah, or looking to get rid of some kind of pain in them. So maybe you're trying to meditate, and then you start thinking about lunch, or you start thinking about uh, when you're going to go on holiday, and where you're going to go, who you're going to see, all the good things you're going to do, and you're off as running. Isn't that uh, conjoined with attachment? Okay, so the dreams are usually, when we're talking about the afflictions, have to do usually with attachment. Not always. Sometimes we anticipate something that's going to happen later in the day or next week, and it's something we dread and we don't want to have happen, in which case then there is fear, anxiety, anger, something like that coming up in our mind. Same thing regarding the past. We can think of something delightful, and we are off in that memory, yeah, until the bell rings. <laughs> yeah. Or we remember something from the past, and we get angry about it. You know, how could that person have said that to me? So, again, you see afflictions coming up and really disturbing the mind. Okay. So, uh, to be mindful of those afflictions is not just the memories. It's because why, why do we, we remember things about our lives and not anybody else's life? Yeah. Because it has something to do with my feelings of pleasure or pain. Uh And I'm quite attached to the pleasure and have quite a bit of aversion to the pain. Okay, verse 2. However, through solitude of body and mind, no distractions will occur. Therefore, I should forsake the worldly life and completely disturb discard afflictions. Okay, so this verse, we read it. However, through solitude of body and mind, he's telling me I get to go find a cave in the Himalayas and meditate alone. He's telling me I can escape from my family, escape from my work, escape from all this political stuff in the country and just live solitary body in body and mind, just me in the forest with the birds and the deers and the bunny rabbits and no afflictions in my mind because none of them are going to boss me around. None of them are going to, uh, you know, entice me into my old habits. I will just live so peacefully and tranquilly in the woods. 
and it feeds our our uh, fantasy, yeah, our Millarepa fantasy, yeah. So that's our Millarepa fantasy. The point that we don't include in our Millarepa fantasy, okay, is when Rachungpa, Millarepa's disciple, was going to go do a retreat, and he was saying goodbye to his teacher, Millarepa, going off into the forest, and he turned back to Millarepa and said, what final advice do you have for me? And Millarepa, Millarepa turned his back to Rachungpa, lowered his pants, or lift up his dhoti, one or the other, and, and said, look, and there were calluses all over Millarepa's tush, indicating that he had sat for a long time, really doing his practice in the cave. Yeah? And that was his parting instruction to Richungpa. Mm-hmm. So when you remember that, you know, this fantasy of being a great yogi, uh, hmm, I'm not so sure about it anymore. Yeah, I want my tush to be soft. I don't want to sit on hard rocks and get calluses. You know, I mean, my cave is going to have central heating. It has, it has air con. And, uh, you know, there's got to be a really nice, comfy meditation cushion. Soft one. Yeah. Okay. And then, then you see, oh, mm, yeah. What's he talking about here? Is it just that that's going to make my mind peaceful and enable me to concentrate? having my own high-end cave? <laughs> no, that's not going to do it. Okay. Lama Zopa, whenever he teaches this verse, or whenever he says anything about isolation, when the word isolation or seclusion or solitude comes up in any text, he always says the meaning of that is that we are separated from the eight worldly concerns. Yeah, It doesn't mean you go up to your uh, high-end cave. It means that in your mind, you are not controlled by attachment to the happiness of this life. You're not controlled by all your wants and ideas and opinions and reactions and craving. Okay, yeah. So when we do retreat every winter for three months, you know, what are we retreating from? Yeah, we're not retreating from the emails, although we sure wish we could, or at least I do. But we're trying to retreat from the worldly concerns. Okay. Seeking praise, seeking approval, sweet ego-pleasing words. Oh, I want more of those. Yeah. 
and a good douse of a good reputation. So I know people are saying wonderful things about me behind my back. And some sense pleasure. Yeah, pancakes for every breakfast. Yeah. And that's what, you know, we're retreating from, is that kind of attachment. And similarly, the displeasure of not having the material things we want and people saying things to us that we really don't want to hear. Like the statements that start out with, why don't you, okay, as soon as you hear why don't you, you're going like this. (laughs) Or statements that start out with, you should, We don't want to hear those kinds of things, okay? Or or statements, not why don't you, but why did you? Yeah, why did you do? No, 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 I, sorry, Um, I don't have my hearing aids in. (laughs) Yeah, can't hear you. Uh, Yeah, and the batteries just went out, so... mm. Okay, so, uh, you know, what what we're trying to really overcome is these attachments and aversions, you know, and then all the auxiliary afflictions that come along with them. And there's lots of those. Okay. So, however, through solitude of body and mind, no distractions will occur. So just to get in our meditation to have a solitude of body and mind takes years and years of work. Yeah. The solitude of the body, yeah, that's easy. You just go off somewhere. Okay? But we you can go off somewhere and you take the whole town with you. Yeah. And what everybody else is saying, what the newspapers are writing, you have that all going on in your mind. Yeah, here I am, you know, maybe not in a cave. I'm at Shrivasti Abbey for winter retreat. I wrote and told all my old friends that I'm doing retreat, meditation retreat for three months. So I'm not going to write to them. Now they will know that I... I'm a true spiritual being following my spiritual calling. And they will all respect me. And after I gain realizations, they will all come and bow at my feet. And before I gain the realizations, they will all send care packages full of cookies and ice cream and... You know, uh, what's that? Starbucks coffee. Yeah, they'll send me care ba- care packages that I will, you know, dine on in my retreat as I am gaining realizations. Okay, yeah. So solitude of body is one thing. Solitude of mind is another yeah, and it's true that external things influence us. So that's why 
in our practice, we take care about the environments that we put ourselves in. You know, you don't go to the bar. You don't go out with your old friends who smoke dope. Yeah, you're not going to the casino. You're not going to the um, uh, disco. Yeah, because you've been there. You've done that. You know what happens to your mind when you're in those situations. And you know that you're trying to cultivate something different now. So you don't go to those environments. Of course, there's some environments we can't avoid going to. And that pu- and those environments uh, push our buttons. Yeah. What are those environments? It's called life. Okay. Life will beat us up. Yeah. Um, and help us to grow if we apply the Dharma. Yeah. If we don't ba- apply the Dharma, then we grow up to be old, cynical, bitter, angry people. Okay. So what's the remedy? Therefore, I should forsake the worldly life and completely discard afflictions. So the worldly life is an attitude. Yeah. Now, yes, the environment influences us, so especially at the beginning, you know. And beginning doesn't mean for a few days. Beginning is a long period of time. We take very good care of what kind of environment we put ourselves in. Yeah. Um so that we can create virtue and not get sucked into all of our bad habits again and all of our attachments and all of our grudges and so forth. Okay, so uh, when it says, I shall forsake the worldly life, it's not just, okay, mom and dad, I'm never going to speak to you again. Yeah, that's not it, because you can sit in your meditation and meditate about them for a long, long time. Yeah. Okay. So the worldly attitude is, uh, and the worldly life is an attitude, but it also is displayed by our actions and the choices we make of where to be, what to do, and so on. So this is one area where we should not be um, arrogant. Yeah, and think, well, I don't have much attachment, so I can live just in my old life with my old friends, and it's not going to adversely influence me. Yeah, if you have that idea, you know, especially at the beginning of the path, you are already off the cliff, sliding down the slippery slope. Yeah. Because, you know, we haven't done the preliminary work and we think that we are already too highly spiritual to be concerned with, uh, you know, certain attachments and, and things. Okay, so we shouldn't be arrogant about that. Because whenever we think, oh, that's not a problem for me anymore, it will come up out of left field and whack you, okay? And I can say that from experience. Yeah, 
and you get whacked and you go, what's happening? Yeah. I thought I was over that. But actually, I really want that chocolate after all. And then you go, what? That's not what I've been trying to practice for years. Oh, but... You know? So you have to, you know, really understand what worldly life is and forsake it. As I was preparing this morning and reading these verses, it was amazing how certain events in my life just popped up. I read a verse and like, boom, you know, there's something that happened to me. Or there's another verse that I remember. And when I read this verse, I remembered uh, some of the verses, automatically it came to mind, from the uh, ordination ceremony. Yeah? So I thought it might be good if we chanted those verses. Yeah? I think some of you know them by heart. Can you put them on the screen? Yeah, so these are, are some verses that get chanted during the ordination ceremony. And you can see, you know, so I'm not doing this encouraging everybody to get ordained, but to show how the meanings, you have the meaning in one text, you have the meaning in another text, yeah, and how these things go together. The Vinaya is not something separate from the Dharma. Yeah, the Dharma and the Vinaya are linked. Okay, so here's the first one. So we'll do this together. Mm -hmm. Transmigrating in the three realms, one is not able to sever attachment, give up attachment and enter nirvana. That is the true way to repay kindness. That is powerful, isn't it? Yeah. And that, that's why, you know, before you ordain, it's good th that you have these, hear these verses and contemplate them, okay? Because what, where in the ordination ceremony is this coming? Right before you say goodbye to your parents and family. Yeah. After that, that's when you go in the back of the room, yeah, and you say goodbye to them. So um, you can see in this verse, okay, transmigrating in the three realms, the desire, form, and formless realms. In other words, up and down like a yo-yo in samsara. When we are like that, we're not able to sever attachment because if we don't have a mind that has had the, four, if we don't have the opportunity in some life to hear the Dharma teachings and to have the ability, the time and material, come, you know, resources to stay alive so that we can meditate and contemplate on these things, yeah, then, yeah, one is not able to sever attachment because what you know what are our our ordinary lives about 
yeah, before you met the Dharma, even after you met the Dharma, what is most important to you every day? Pleasure. Yeah, pleasure. Whose pleasure? Mine. Mine. Yeah, and that's the most important thing to us every day, my pleasure, and avoiding anything that disturbs me. Okay, so my pleasure comes from outside and my pain comes from outside. And then we try and navigate the world rearranging all of our duckies. So we have the duckies we like and we don't have the duckies we don't like. And we should take out our collection of duckies again. Yeah. We, somebody sent us about 50, 40, 50 duckies. Yeah? Yeah. So, um, yeah, because we were like little kids in the bathtub with our plastic duckies, trying to make everything so that we like it. And then the waves come and the duckies move. Okay, so we're not able to sever attachment when we are living in the middle of everything that we are attached to. So we have to create some physical space first, and then, because we don't have so much, uh, our time is not so much occupied physically with those things we're attached to, it gives us more time in our meditation to uh, deconstruct all the attachment we have, mental attachment to those things, Okay. Give up attachment and enter nirvana. Okay. If you want to attain nirvana, if you want to attain full awakening, you have to give something up. People always think that the Buddha's asking us to renounce pleasure. He's not. The Buddha is asking us to renounce undesirable circumstances, dukkha. Yeah. That's the first truth. That's what he wants us to renounce. It's not pleasure. It's dukkha. What are the causes of dukkha? Well, the root is ignorance, but craving is a big, a good friend of ignorance. Okay? So craving, attachment, clinging uh, to eight worldly concerns and to uh, just even the bliss of uh, meditation. And so if we cling to these kinds of things, there's, there's no way to liberate our mind. Yeah. There's one story that, that I hear, read sometimes in, in Buddhist... Um, magazines that they, I think they have misinterpreted. It's a story about uh, somebody who slipped and fell off a cliff, and as he was going down, he grabbed a branch of something, and so he was holding on that branch, and you know the bottom is there, and he sees a strawberry 
growing out of the cliff. And he and the way some Buddhist magazines tell it, then he says, wonderful, a strawberry. I'll be in the present moment and enjoy this strawberry. Okay. The way my teachers tell that story is you've fallen off the cliff, you're holding that branch. You look at the strawberry, the mind says, oh, I can experience pleasure. And then you realize, what good is that pleasure going to do me? It would be much better if I prepared my mind for when the branch breaks or prepared my mind to figure out some way to get to the top of the cliff again. Yeah. In other words, just enjoying momentary pleasure is is not the meaning of be in the moment and is not what is recommended. It just reaffirms attachment. Yeah. So I think we, I'm getting off the subject here, but I think it's important because we hear a lot, be in the present moment, be in the present moment. What in the world does that mean? Does that mean you eat your strawberry as you're hanging off the cliff? And I, oh, this strawberry is so delicious. It's a long way down. I'm going to ignore it. I'll take another bite of this delicious strawberry. I'll even include my bodhicitta practice. May all beings taste delicious strawberries as they're falling off a cliff. Okay? (laughs) That is not the meaning of living in the present moment. And it's interesting. I I don't know about you, but my Tibetan teachings, teachers don't mention that a lot, do they? Yeah? Do you hear them mention? I I not so much. My my teachers are always saying, Yeah, you have a precious human life. You just got out of the lower realms. You have an opportunity to do something really meaningful in your life. Don't waste it on strawberries. Yeah, don't waste it on short-lived, you know, pleasures. But do something meaningful with your life for that will benefit you in the long time, that will benefit other sentient beings in the long time. Yeah. And that's what they all said. And that's what really made sense to me. You know, it's like, how many strawberries can you eat? How much chocolate can you eat? How many relationships can you have? So I I received a a letter from somebody recently. I'll take this time to to answer it, and then you can let the person know to listen to the teaching. But somebody wrote, and uh, I'm paraphrasing now, and said, I love the Dharma, it really makes sense to me, but I'm, you know, in my early 50s, and I'm not in a relationship, and I would really like a long-term companion. I feel like something is missing, yeah, in my life. 
And I tried to like give that up, but always this feeling of loneliness and longing, you know, for that kind of relationship comes back. So help. So, uh, yeah, this is, is something I think most people have at one time or another. You know, it can come when you're younger, it can come when you're older. And the interesting thing, it can also come when you're in a relationship. Yeah, you're in a relationship and you feel very lonely. Yeah, the, the, the connection with the other person isn't there. Or it's there some days and not there other days. And we think the problem is with the other person or the problem is with the, the uh, relationship. Actually, the problem is our dissatisfied mind. Yeah, we always want something new that is exciting. Yeah. But one thing that... Uh, okay, so I am not speaking about a relationship as a relationship expert, but I had enough, and I was married before I became a nun, so I've had a little experience with it. But um, if we think that the other person is going to be our um, our other half, that's how, it, you know, when you are in a relationship, it's often described as this person is my other half. Yeah. Well, that means that you aren't a full whole person. If we are not a mature, confident person, how are we going to have a mature, satisfying relationship? Especially in relationships that are based on attachment. You know, if we come into things with all of our needs and all of our wants, and, you know, I need somebody to be there. I need encouragement. I like the security of somebody else around. You know, I need somebody to bolster my spirits when I get criticized. I I need this and that, or whatever it is. Or my parents keep asking when I'm going to get married and when I'm going to have kids. And I need somebody to, you know, make them satisfied because then they'll let me alone, you know. But no, they won't. They'll find other questions like, why don't you have another kid? Uh, Yeah. But... um, You know, if we come to relationships and our purpose is to get our needs met, yeah, is that what's going to happen? Yeah, if somebody came to you and said, I love you dearly, yeah, and I, for my whole life, even though I don't know what my life is going to look like, and how I'm going to feel. But I love you dearly, and I will never leave you. But, or not but, and I expect you to always be there for me. 
I expect you to tell me you love me regularly. I expect you to agree with all my ideas, even when I change my ideas. I expect you to have the same political opinions as me. I expect you to encourage me and to stick up for me. I expect you to always be in the same mood that I am. So when I want to be laughing, you should be also in a jovial mood. And when I want to be serious and have a deep discussion, you should also be in that mood and have a deep discussion with me. And this is, you know, what I'm expecting out of our marriage because, or our relationship, because this is, you're my better half. You're my other half. Now, if somebody said that to you, what are you going to say? <laughs> yeah, what are you going to say? Yes, I will do as directed. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. Does that person have reasonable expectations of what you can do? No. But you have those same reasonable reasonable expectations of them that they're going to fulfill all your needs and wishes. Are your expectations reasonable? No. So how is somebody else going to help you overcome your loneliness and your lack of confidence? Yeah. It's not something someone else can do. Yeah, it's something we have to do through, you know, a very uh, deep meditation, really asking ourselves, you know, is this really the solution to my problem? And, and coming to see that loneliness is an attitude. It's not the lack of another person nearby. Okay. And this is why I like Mother Teresa's verse or her attitude. I can't quote her verse, but her attitude is, I, you know, if I'm lonely, give me somebody to love. Okay. Somebody that I can show love to because that person needs love, not because I need love. Yeah. So if I feel lonely, you know, give me somebody to be in a, a companion to. That companion doesn't have to be Prince Charming on his white horse. Yeah. It can be any person. And it can be no person because the whole thing is changing the attitude. Yeah. And when we open our mind and, you know, this is where I think the meditation on the kindness of sentient beings is so important and why we need to do it again and again and again. Because when we do it, then we realize, you know, I can actually communicate with everybody. If I try, if I open my mind, if I shut down my opinion factory, and my judgment factory, I can have 
a good conversation with anybody. And that good conversation doesn't have to mean that we have a long-term relationship. It's just connection with sentient beings that's important. Okay? So then you see, if you do the inner work, then kind of it takes care of itself. Because when you expect somebody else to fulfill all those needs, it's not something they can do in the same way as we cannot fulfill somebody else's needs. Yeah? And I think this is why so the marriage, or I should say the divorce rate, is so high is because people have unreasonable expectations. And some of those expectations come from movies and radios and magazines because we are taught that a relationship is the be-all and end-all of joy. Yeah? And I think this is why people like marriages so much, because it allows them to fantasize for themselves, you know, like way back when, when I got married, oh yes, I remember that happy attitude when everything was perfect. And it's 20 years later and I don't really have it, but I can fantasize about it again. It was so wonderful. Yeah, or I don't have it now, I'll have it in the future, I can fantasize. Yeah, and and that's exactly what it is, it's a fantasy. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, and this is how we get trapped in these fantasies that our family teaches us and society teaches us. Yeah? And we are well-conditioned in these things, plus our own inner craving and attachment. And so we say, you know, if I give up attachment, then I hurt so many people's feelings. Yeah, all those people who are attached to me, I hurt their feelings if I give up that attachment. Well, there's another verse coming that tells us how to relate to that kind of thing. No, we can be friends with people. We can have good relationships without the attachment. And relationships are better when there's not the attachment. Because then you're not sitting there wanting something from the other person. Yeah? So whether it's a romantic relationship or a parental relationship with a child or with your boss or, you know, when uh, we have attachment, we're wanting something from somebody. Lama Yeshe once said, this is a famous Lama Yeshe quote, when somebody, when somebody, no, he says, when you say to somebody, I love you, what you really mean is, I want to use you. Okay. Yeah, he didn't pull any punches. That's true, isn't it? Yeah. Although we, we don't want to say, I 
Mama, use you. That's like awful. But it's kind of what we want to do. Okay, let's chant that verse again. Okay. You can really think about, you know, what what we have to work on in our practice. Transmigrating in the three realms, one is not able to sever attachment, give up attachment and enter nirvana. That is the true way to repay kindness. So if we want to repay the kindness of the people we were attached to, the best way to do it, this verse is saying, is by keeping good ethical conduct, transforming our own mind, practicing the Dharma, yeah, attaining awakening, and then having the skills and compassion and wisdom to be able to really benefit others. That's the best way to repay the kindness of our family and friends, not by doing the tap dance they want us to do. But that is hard. Yeah, when we're very attached to those people and we want their approval and we want, you know, to be accepted in that group, it's really hard to say, you know, I... I will be friends, and I love you, and I appreciate you, but I'm not going to do the tap dance. Okay? But this is really necessary if we're going to turn our mind to the Dharma. Yeah, when we chant uh, every Wednesday after lunch, uh, parting from the four clingings, this is the exact same meaning. Okay, and that's why all of the uh, the traditions teach this at the beginning. And if you have a good teacher, they never stop hammering this into your head. Yeah, seriously, you know, because if we hear it just once, in one ear, it stays about ten seconds out the other ear. Yeah. So one of my teachers, the whole minute, we had a month-long meditation course, the whole course, the evil thought of the eight worldly concerns, seeking only the happiness of this life. He's saying to a bunch of hippies who just came up from Freak Street with their bags of dope hidden in their meditation cushion. (laughs) Okay. So, okay, verse 3. Worldly life is not forsaken because of attachment to people and due to craving for material grain and the like. This verse would read better if instead of saying because of attachment, we said due to attachment. Yeah, so worldly life is not forsaken 
due to attachment to people, we're very attachment to people, and due to craving for material gain and the like. The like is, you know, fame, fortune, whatever it is you are craving, okay? Therefore, I should entirely forsake these things, for this is the way in which the wise behave. So you notice throughout the text that Shantideva will refer to the childish and to the wise. Okay, the childish are the people who seek the happiness of only this life or seek the happiness in samsara. The wise are, in particular, the Aryas who have realized the nature of reality. So if we uh, care about what other people think of us, it's better to think of what the aryas think about our our behavior and not what the childish beings do. Okay, so worldly life, why don't we why don't we give it up? Because we're attached to people. People are one of our biggest attachments, aren't they? You know? And what's tricky is our relationship with sentient beings gives meaning to our lives. Yeah. So Buddhism is not saying that you cut off all relationships with everybody else and you are just some aloof ascetic, not attached to anything. And everybody comes to you to seek advice. And they bow at your feet because you are the great ascetic, unattached to anything. And you hope they brought a lot of offerings with them. Okay? And you hope that they will go down and tell everybody else how truly spiritual you are. Yeah. Meditating in that cave for the benefit of all sentient beings. Yeah. With my refrigerator and central heating and aircon and mattress and, yeah, five years supply of chocolate. Okay. So, um, you know, we're quite attached to people, but giving up the attachment doesn't mean giving up people or giving up, you know, connecting to other people, because that's the whole idea of bodhicitta, isn't it? Yeah, what bodhicitta is teaching us is a healthy way to connect with other people. Yeah. Bodhicitta is not you are the cold ascetic up, you know, nothing bothers me. Yeah, you're, you're the ice cube, the chief ice cube. Okay? Yeah, I mean, it, it, do you look at the Dalai Lama, does he look like the chief ice cube? Yeah? I was saying, I don't have any attachment for anybody. No, I mean, His Holiness is completely engaged with sentient beings in a healthy way, not in the way of attachment. 
Okay, so the challenge for us is to figure out what does a healthy relationship, or not one relationship, what do healthy relationships, what do healthy connections with other sentient beings look like if they don't have attachment? Because nobody in our life before we met the Dharma ever presented any kind of example of that or talked about having any kind, how to have that kind of thing. What we were usually taught is attachment to these people and guilt if you do things they don't like. Yeah? Are those things healthy? If you relate to others just through attachment and guilt? Yeah. That is not the way to have healthy relationships. So, you know, this is our koan. Okay? We're going to be Chan practitioners. (laughs) But it really is, you know, what does... A relationship, a close, what do close relationships look like without attachment? Do close relationships mean you always have to be with that person? Do close relationships mean you tell everything to that person and they tell everything to you? When His Holiness was teaching last week and you saw him walking from the throne through the whole crowd, okay? Was he connecting with those sentient beings? Boy, there was a lot of connection there, wasn't there? And what was he doing? He was going like this to a baby. He was blowing on somebody's mala. He was patting somebody at the arm, on the arm. He was looking at somebody in the eye. Yeah. He was connecting with those people. Was there any chat attachment? Is he getting anything out of it in a selfish way? No. He's just being who he is with a loving mind, and it just comes out quite spontaneously. Yeah. And he's not worried about... Oh, did I, that person gave me their mala to bless. Did I uh, bless it right? Did I say the right number of of, uh, uh, mantra before I blew on it? Um, You know, he's not saying, he's not thinking, oh, did I touch that baby long enough? Or, you know, so that the mama is pleased and the papa is pleased. And, you know, he doesn't have that kind of anxiety. Uh, you know, how did I perform with all these people? Okay, so there, you know, and this is, I think, one of the beautiful things that we see from our teachers is the example of how to do things without afflictions. Yeah? And so those people, he may or may not see any of them again. And you know what? Even when His Holiness looks you in the eye and praises you, it's not only you. Yeah. People get all excited. Oh, His Holiness looked at me. 
He looks at everybody. It's not just me. And, it, you know, I am not special. More, or put it this way, I'm not more special than everybody else that he looks at. Yeah, because he has place in his heart for everybody. Yeah, so even the people I don't like have a place in his holiness's heart. And even when I act obnoxious, I still have a place in his heart. So that doesn't mean that I have to be the special one who gets more attention or more whatever, you know, validation. Okay? So it's it's really a teaching, you know, and it, you have to change how your mind looks at stuff. Yeah? Otherwise, it's like... His holiness looked at me. Did his holiness look at you? Oh, he looked at you too. I'm so happy for you. Did his holiness look at you? Oh, he didn't. Well, you know, I have a closer relationship with his holiness. So, of course, he's going to see me out of the crowd. And the other person goes, but I, I, he knows who I am too. Why didn't he look at me? He looked at you when he was walking through, but he didn't look at me. And, and he knows who I am. Oh, <laughs> yeah, this is not what's going through the minds of all. I hope it's not what's going through the minds of the Geshe's and Rinpoche's at the front of the 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 room who are looking down when His Holiness comes. You know, all the Ingies are looking up. You know, is he going to look at me? Uh, well, the Tibetans look up too. You know want to have contact with him. But so, so this is, is something to really think about. What does a healthy relationship with other sentient beings look like? Yeah. And what, and these emotional needs that I have, how can they be either subdued or redirected? You know, that need for connection, yeah, because His Holiness is always telling us we're social animals, okay? So how do we re, re, redirect that uh, wish for connection so it becomes connection that's beneficial? Okay, lots to think about in these verses. Maybe we should do the next verse from the from the ordination ceremony. So th- this verse is chanted. You're, you're, uh, the sangha is calling you the courageous one because you are courageous in terms of leaving craving. Yeah. How wonderful! This is rare and hard. 
to comprehend and speak about. How wonderful, great courageous one, you are able to know the world is impermanent. Leave the worldly life, proceed to nirvana. This is rare and hard to comprehend and speak about. So this is chanted around the time when your the tuft of your hair is clipped. Okay. So there's a lot in this verse, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Great courageous one. We usually think of courageous means courageous in a battle, you know? You shot down, you killed so many people in battle. Yeah. You're so courageous. Yeah. From Shantideva's view, that is total cowardice. Fighting war is cowardice. And it's senseless. There's absolutely no purpose to it. Yeah. So what is courageous? Learning to solve conflicts without physical harm without destroying somebody verbally, without trashing them in your mind. Yeah. And how do we do that? Yeah, we have to be courageous. So we have to give up our attachment and give up our anger and possessiveness and so on. And what helps us to do that? to meditate on impermanence. Yeah, to meditate that everything we are attached to is ephemeral. Yeah, this is another one of Lama Yeshi's little gems. Come, come, go, go. Four words, it is profound. I mean, I remember this a lot. Yeah, things are impermanent. Come, come, go, go. There's nothing we can hang on to. Yeah? So there's the gross impermanence that we can uh, see with our eyes and things falling apart and so on. And there's the subtle impermanence of things changing moment by moment, never staying the same, arising and ceasing all the time. Okay? So if we are aware of that impermanence, it is a big help in cutting the attachment, okay? But it requires some courage to meditate on impermanence because when you meditate on impermanence, you know, all the, th- all the ideas that, that, and your whole way you structure your life is getting s- challenged because what do we want in our life? We want predictability and permanence, okay? We want to get all of our duckies in order 
and then nothing changes. Yeah, nobody dies. Nobody has a change of heart. Yeah, nobody spills spaghetti sauce. Nobody, you know, outgrows their shoes. Everything is predictable and, yeah, not change. Or if there's change, I am the one who makes the change. Okay, and other people just have to adjust to it. But I do not like the changes other people make that influence me, especially if they haven't asked my permission. Yeah. And here we are, if we look at the world, the situation in the world, you know, today we have so many hot items on the front page of the paper. Gun safety, big hot item because there were, there are just so many mass shootings. The war in Ukraine, that's another big thing that's causing inflation and, you know, uh, chain, what is it, supply chain delays. What? Yeah, and food shortage. Okay. And then today start the um, January 6th hearings. Yeah. So we're going to have a full display of how trustworthy the people in our government are or were or aren't. Okay. And we would sure like the world to be predictable, wouldn't we? And calm and in place, no war, no food shortage, no mass killings, yeah, no corruption in the government. And the world just doesn't cooperate with us. Yeah, why? Because we are living in samsara. Why? Because we created the cause. Okay, so we want, well, that's just even in the big thing of things. But here in the Abbey, we want everything to be predictable. Okay, so we want to know what day we're going to break ground on the Buddha Hall. Okay, because we have a lot of things to do before that. We have to plan a, a groundbreaking ceremony. We have to send out emails. We have to sign the contract. We, what day and what time are those machines going to roll up here? Yeah, and start digging. Well, they're not going to dig first. They're probably going to stake the ground first and then mark off the trees. But, you know, when's it going to happen? I want to know. Take a guess. It's as good as mine. (laughs) So, just even day to day, I want to know what we're doing this afternoon because it changes every day. Yeah. 
And those people who are the offering service coordinators, they change from the end of lunch until 2.30. They change their minds. And I'm just supposed to adjust. Yeah? Well, yeah, that's part of your training. And that's part of life. (laughs) Yeah? We have to adjust. Well, there's two choices. We either adjust or we're miserable. So you can pick which one you want. Okay. So, um, yeah. You are able to know the world is impermanent. Yeah. And so with everything being impermanent, what can you grab onto for lasting security and predictability? Okay. Can you think of any person who is always going to be there for you? You know, who can you rely on in this impermanent, transient, ephemeral world? Okay. If you're thinking of some ordinary sentient being, that's the wrong track. You know, who can we rely on in this world? The Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Are they going to swoop down and protect us and make everything in our life go the way we want? No. They can't do that. Will they lead us to nirvana and awakening? Yes. Will we follow them as they lead? That one is up to us. Okay. So the world is impermanent. So if if you're seeking happiness from things that are impermanent, you're you already know that there's going to be separation because whatever comes together separates. Yeah, that's just the nature of things. Yeah. So so this really strikes very hard at I want my cake and I want to eat it too. Yeah. Remember that that little thing that your mother used to tell you when you were acting as a brat? Oh, you want your cake, but you want to eat it too? Yes, Mom. (laughs) You know. And Mom and Dad are our first teachers of, that's not the way life works. If you eat your cake, it's not there. Yeah, things change. Things are impermanent. If you think that that cake is going to give you everlasting satisfaction, it's not. Yeah. Does that mean you should eat it immediately? No. You have to think. Is it more beneficial to eat it now or eat it later? Or maybe not eat it at all. Yeah. But I can see it with a clear mind and decide, make a decision that's not influenced by craving and aversion. Okay? Leave the worldly life and proceed to nirvana. Okay? Okay? It doesn't say stay in the worldly life 
and be in nirvana at the same time. That's what we want. Okay, we want permanent nirvana. And we want to fulfill all of our attachments. At the same time, what's wrong with that? Is it really too much to ask? Yeah? Can't I have my chocolate and my video games and my relationship and my red convertible sports car? And can't I have all these things and nirvana at the same time? Yeah? Why not? Why not? Yeah. So we try and bargain. But who are you going to bargain with? There's no creator God to bargain with. Are you going to bargain with the Buddha? Buddha, you know, if I give up the craving to attachment, can I then have nirvana? You know, this is how you bargained with mom and dad. Remember that? Yeah. If, if I clean up my room, then can I stay up late? I want samsara and nirvana at the same time. I want to eat my cake and have it too. Yeah. And so this getting over that is really involves, you know, shedding the craving. Does it mean that then you are impartial, you have no preferences, you know, you go back to, you're no longer an ice cube, you are now a glacier, frozen that much? Yeah, I don't want anything. Or you're a bump on the log, you know, I've mastered non-attachment. You live, you die. I don't care. I'm not attached to anything. Yeah. Is that our image of nirvana? (laughs) Do you want to be like that? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know about you. That's not my image of what nirvana would be like. Or Buddhahood. I think Buddhahood's a better example. Is Buddhahood like that? Yeah, you just sit there. You are a bump on a log. You don't care about anything. Unattached. Yeah. No, you're unattached. And you care about every single living being. Okay. But you care about him without being attached to him. And we, you know, we care about what happens in the world, but we also know that we cannot control it. We can do what we can to influence it in a good way, but we can't control it. Okay, proceed to nirvana. This is rare and hard to to comprehend and speak about. That's true, isn't it? Yeah. It's the way of the white crows. It's the way of swimming upstream. Yeah. Most people are going to look at you and say, you are nuts. Why do you want to do that? And 
that kind of inculcation starts very young. When one of my nieces was just seven years old, you know, I was staying at her house. She's now, I think, 37 or thereabouts. But um, when she was seven years old, she said, why do you wear the same clothes every day? Yeah, at age seven, you're already taught you should not wear the same clothes every day. Nobody tells you why. Yeah, and nobody tells you that some people only have one set of clothes and you're fortunate to have more. Yeah. But, you know, all this training we get starting very young about attachment. Okay. So again, giving up attachment doesn't mean you're apathetic. doesn't mean you are lost in the world and don't know what to do with yourself. It doesn't mean you have no aims. Yeah. You have a very clear mind. You know, your wisdom is activated, so you know what your priorities are. You know what your what direction you want to go in in your life. Yeah, you're very clear about what your values are. But you can be clear and confident in that way without being attached. And the opposite of non-attachment is not that glacier. Okay, so any questions or comments? We did three whole verses. Okay, then we'll dedicate.